Friends, today we continue our series through the book of the prophet Habakkuk. We've been here for a little bit over a month. And after this week, we'll have two more weeks in Habakkuk. And then, I'm not sure where we're going. No, I'm kidding. We're going to Mark afterwards. And we're probably going to spend a couple of years. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> We'll probably spend a couple of years. We'll, we'll, we probably won't do the whole book through at once, but we'll spend a couple of years in the Gospel of Mark as we as we seek as we seek to know the Lord through His Word. Uh, the, the proclamation of the Word is the centerpiece of church life. Uh, the, the most important question about a church is: Does it proclaim God's Word faithfully? And if it does. All other things will fall into place. Our passage for today is Habakkuk 2, verses 15 through 20. Here's the word of the Lord. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your field of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utterly shame, utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them. For the blood of men and violence to the earth, the cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image? A teacher of lies? For its maker trusts its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. One of the most attractive aspects of Christianity is its simplicity. If you were to ask Jesus today, what is at the heart of the Christian faith, he would respond, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's it, Jesus. That's it. And yet, this simplicity is not simplistic. Although the call to obey is simple, and the commandment is simple, our hearts tend not towards obedience, but towards disobedience. Our hearts are not naturally inclined towards the worship of the one true God, but towards idolatry. So it is possible to understand the truth of Christianity in our heads, 
and to reject it in our hearts. And this is a great problem. Because the rejection of God's truth in the hearts is a rejection of God Himself. And the only right response God has for those who reject Him is justice through judgment. God's judgment means living outside of His favor, living apart from Him, living under His wrath. God's judgment means an eternal punishment in hell. God's judgment is fair, and it is the worst thing anyone can endure. In Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul listing vices very similar, very similar to the ones we just saw in this passage, says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It's pending. It's like a ticking ball. It's about to be poured. If you're a Christian among us, this passage today is a call for us to grow in our dependence on the Lord. We don't fear His wrath, but the call to obedience is necessary. We show evidence of regeneration by hearing warnings and heeding them. If you're an unbeliever among us, we are so thankful that you are here. You could not be at a better place this morning. This text today will serve to you as an opportunity for you to evaluate your eternal destiny. This should be by far the most important issue in your mind. The judgment of God is imminent and only God can spare you from God Himself. So, how do we escape the judgment of God. We escape the judgment of God by heeding His call to love Him above all things and to love others as we love ourselves. Now what I've said for the past five minutes or so is not commonly said from the pulpits of most churches. Judgment is not a popular theme, and yet the Bible is filled with this theme. It is a loving thing for a pastor to proclaim the danger of rejecting God. It is a loving thing for a pulpit to be filled with the words of judgment, because it is by knowing that God judges justly that we can run to God who spares us from His own judgment. We come across passages like this when we preach verse by verse. We, we come across passages like this when we let the Bible speak. So, you were to ask me, were you very excited about preaching the sermon last night as you are finishing up your preparation? And I would say to you, no. I was actually scared to preach the sermon. 
And yet, in the midst of fear, we're called to have faith. And we're called to be faithful. So let me remind you, if the words today are hard, they're not mine, they're from God. And if I had hard words for you, that were coming from me, you would not need to listen. But if God has hard words, we do well in listening. So, just as a brief review, the book of Habakkuk is a dialogue between the prophet Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk cries out to God because the people of Israel is wicked. And Habakkuk pleads with God to judge Israel. God responds by saying that he would judge Israel by bringing on them the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, who are a powerful and violent nation. Habakkuk's response is, Lord, how can you judge your people with a people that is more wicked than us? And God says, trust me. Though judgment is coming, the righteous shall live by faith. The Chaldeans would judge Israel, but God would judge the Chaldeans. And through God's judgment of the Chaldeans, Israel would be saved. So we find ourselves in chapter 2 where God is proclaiming judgments in the form of five woes on the Chaldeans. Last week we saw the first three woes. This week we see the last two. So if you return to the passage, we'll, we'll look at God's warning to love people and not use them. God cares about the way we treat others. God is not indifferent to the way we treat the cashier at the supermarket or the person taking too long on the green lights in front of us. God cares about the way we treat our neighbors. God cares about the way we treat others on social media. God cares about the way we treat our wives, our children, our parents. God cares about the way we speak to the people who don't vote like us. God cares about the way we treat others regardless of who they are. The golden rule is simple and straightforward. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. We see in verse 15 that God pronounces a woe to Babylon because they abuse their neighbors by forcing them to drink alcohol. Babylon was famous for their drinking parties filled with drunkenness and debauchery. Drunkenness is the consumption of alcohol to the point that it affects the mind. Drunkenness is a serious sin. 
It is a sin that the Bible speaks against often. Paul says in Ephesians that being drunk is the opposite of being filled with the Spirit. When one is drunk, one is not able to exercise self-control. And self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. Our minds and our actions must reflect the holiness of God at all times. In the consumption of any substance, alcohol, drugs, or any other thing, to a point of mental impairment is not holy. God is always under control, and His holiness always shines through. Now, look at verse 15. Notice that the indictment here is not on Babylon's drunkenness, but on the fact that Babylon would force drunkenness on others. And why would Babylon do that? Babylon forced drunkenness on others in order to gaze at their nakedness. Babylon is being indicted in two levels here. On a societal level, Babylon is immoral. Their drinking parties are designed to bring shame on others. They humiliate their neighbors. Babylon's immorality would ultimately be its demise. We see in Daniel 5, King Belshazzar promoting a festival of the flesh, a drinking party with the vessels from the temple of the Lord, and this was the last time Babylon blasphemed against God. On a national level, Babylon oppressed the nations. They would seek to bring the nations down to exalt themselves. Look at verse 17. Babylon's oppression was by no means limited to Israel. Other nations experienced it as well. Lebanon, the beautiful country with the tall cedars, was destroyed. Babylon had no regard for God's creation. Trees, beasts, and the earth. All things that were created to glorify God. And yet, Babylon destroyed them with great disregard. The blood of men, entire cities, those who were created in the image of God were treated with no regard by Babylon. Babylon was interested in their nakedness. Babylon was interested in their shame. This is similar to Noah's story in Genesis 9. As Noah came out of the ark, he planted a vineyard and drunk from it to the point of drunkenness. His son, Ham, saw his nakedness and did not cover it. Instead, he told his brothers, who then went and covered their, their father's shame. If Noah, a blessed man, a man of faith, is susceptible to such debauchery, shouldn't we too be careful ourselves? Now, does this verse demand total abstinence from alcohol? No, it doesn't. 
A simple reading of the text reveals that the issue is drunkenness and the use of alcohol for the shame of others. This verse does, however, issue a strong warning about the dangers of alcohol and the dangers of influencing others to consume alcohol. This verse is also addressed a very troubling issue in our society today. An issue that the church is not immune to. The issue of pornography. Gazing at the nakedness, nakedness of others is an issue that has plagued our society and our churches. The statistics are staggering. They are disheartening. Pornography objectifies men and women who are created in the image of God. It denigrates true beauty and it steals the joy that healthy sexuality affords within the covenant of marriage. If you're struggling with pornography, can I encourage you to reach out? Your pastor is here to help you. Your deacons are here to help you. The church is set up to help you. There are good resources out there that are available to help you. The church is a place where those who are broken and bruised by their sins can find solace and refuge and help. We are here to help you find the grace you need to overcome sin and live in righteousness. Friends, sin will thrive while it's in darkness. But when sin meets light, it loses its power. Friends, in many ways, we're not different from the Babylonians. We live in a society that in many ways embraces Remnants, immorality. We live in a hyper-sexualized society. We live in a society that has legalized the killing of babies in the womb and affirms homosexuality as normative. Our society struggles to define what a woman is and seeks to indoctrinate our children with unashamed queer narratives disguised as cartoons. Should we presume God will be patient with us? The prophet certainly tells Babylon that they should not presume on God's grace. Why? Well, look at verse 16. Because the wrath of God is imminent. Babylon wanted glory by shaming others. We do that sometimes too, don't we? We compare ourselves with others in order to make them look bad and make us look good. Sometimes this is done by gossiping 
or through flaunting our knowledge or by crude joking and sarcasm. Friends, if our society is going to change, the church must be holy. If our society is going to move away from its immorality and from the dependent judgment of God, the church must be blameless. The sins that our society can be accused of must not be true of the church. While our society flirts with immorality, while their sexual mores are all over the place, ours must not be. When our society struggles with their tongue, with how they express themselves, we must speak holy words. The distinction between the church and the society must grow. We must show that we serve a holy God. And His holiness must be so beautiful and so appealing. The society should look at it and say, that's what we need. James 1.16 says this, If anyone thinks he is religious, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The worth of our religion is measured by how well we bridle our tongues. The picture that the Bible presents of how we should interact with others is completely different than what we see in Babylon. We should not use others as footstools for our glory. But instead, we should lay down our glory for the sake of others. God says, don't make others drink for their shame. You drink and show your uncircumcision, Babylon. God is saying, don't shame others. Shame yourself. The picture here is one of self-exposure. To show that one is uncircumcised is to show one's nakedness and to show that one has no covenant with God. And friends, God will pour His wrath on those who are not in covenant in a relationship with Him. Verse 16 finishes with his daunting words. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The proud will be humbled. Those who lift themselves high will be brought low. Throughout the Bible... We see the picture of God's wrath symbolized by a cup of judgment. Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. 
Friends, the stop of judgment is on everyone because we do not love our neighbors as we ought. We're all by nature selfish, self-centered, and the Lord would be right to judge us at this very moment. Every wicked person on this earth deserves to drain the cup of God's wrath. That means you and me. Apart from God's intervention, hell is the final destination for all of us. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We deserve this stuff. You will be right for God to pour the cup of His wrath on us. We are not innocent. We have raised our small fists against Almighty God. But there is one who is innocent. There is one who drank the cup of God's wrath undeservedly. His name is Jesus Christ. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus withdrew from his disciples from a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. And he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this God from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew what cup he was talking about. Jesus knew the contents of the cup. Jesus knew that the cup that he needed to drink was the cup of God's wrath. The innocent, spotless Lamb of God. Friends, and Jesus drank it all until he said, and it is finished. But why would Jesus do that? He, he didn't deserve to die. He didn't earn the judgment of God. We did. Why would the innocent one take on himself the wrath that we deserve, not him? Friends, Jesus drank the cup of God because he wanted to spare you and I from drinking it. You see, Jesus, being God, was able to take on the wrath of God to its full extent. Not one drop left. One little drop of the wrath of God on us and we are doomed for all eternity. Jesus in His perfection fulfills. Jesus in His perfection satisfies the wrath of God. And the sacrifice that He presents is once and for all. Friends, the invitation, the invitation this morning to you is to rest on the sacrifice of Christ. 
Trust that He's taken on the wrath of God on your behalf. And this is the only way that you can be spared eternal judgment from God. Your sins, friend, if you're not trusting Christ, are making a great separation between you and God. And this separation will ultimately lead you to an eternity apart from Him, condemnation in hell. But God is saying, I've provided my Son for you. If you trust in Him, His work is accredited to you. Amen. Friends, we don't need to suffer under the wrath of God because Jesus has done that for us. We must not be like Babylon. We must not be like the unbelieving ones who say, I will drink the cup myself, thinking that we can't stand against Almighty God. We can't. Only Jesus can. So, my question to you is, have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Or are you standing proudly before God? Have you humbled yourself? Or are you going to let God humble yourself at the end? Humility will come. But will you do it willingly before the cross of Christ? Before the sacrifice of Christ? Friend, come to Christ and find life. And life eternal. Continuing our text. We see that God says that we ought to love Him and not worship idols. In verses 18 through 20, we see the issue of idolatry. And idolatry is trusting something or someone more than God. Idolatry was a major struggle for Old Testament Israel. As soon as God led Israel out of Egypt, demonstrating His might and power over Pharaoh and his army, as we heard this morning, Israel found themselves worshipping a golden calf, of which Aaron, the priest, said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. How quickly can the heart of man one towards idolatry. The surrounding nations were not different. Baal, Asherah, Molech, false gods made by hands, who the nations put their trust and faith in. Babylon was deeply entrenched in the worship of false gods. Verse 18 says, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? And the answer is obvious. There's no profit in idols. Their worth is external, metal images, often overlaid with gold and silver, and yet, they can't teach. They can't help. They can't bless. They're made by men. Created after their own image. God's great indictment on idols here is because they can't speak. You see that? In verse 18, they are speechless idols. 
In verse 19, there are silent songs. There is no breath at all in them. Friends, we derive our hope from the fact that God speaks to us. This is why seeking the voice of an idol is so repulsive to God. Unlike idols who cannot speak, God speaks. He speaks to us, He speaks in this age, and He's speaking right now. God speaks all things into being, Genesis 1 3, and God said, let there be lights. And there was lights. God speaks through His creation. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. God speaks through His Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. God, the Spirit, speaks directly to our spirit. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. God the Son, Jesus Christ, speaks to us today as the greatest revelation, as the pinnacle as the summit of God's revelation. The one true God. Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways, or in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But this is a contrast. Right? And the contrast is the superiority of Christ speaking. But in these last days, He has spoken. You see the permanence of Christ speaking? Has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So what is the problem with idolatry? The problem with idolatry is that God offers Himself to us and we say, no thanks. God speaks to us and we say, I would rather hear someone else, God. You know, I grew up in the city of Rio, de Janeiro, Brazil. Beautiful city if you've ever been there. And one of the highest points in Rio is a mountain, and on top of that mountain there is an image of Christ, the Redeemer. I, I never thought of that image as an idol. I just thought of it as a tourist spot in the city I grew up. But one day, visiting the summit of the mountain and visiting the statue, I noticed the beauty of the city, because we're able to see most of the city from up there. And when I turned around to see the statue, I saw a woman kneeling to that statue, 
praying to that statue. And I thought, if you would just turn around and see the beauty of the city, you would see the glory of God. God would speak to you. And He would say to you, I am wonderful. Would you come to me? Would you hear of my glory? Would you hear of my revelation to you? But that woman was looking at that statue, beautifully made, tall statue, impressive. And yet, I can assure you, friends, she never heard from that statue. That statue never spoke to her. You may say, Pastor, I've never bowed down to a statue. I have never worshipped an idol. I am not an idolater. I understand. I have neither. But friends, there is an idolatry that is more deceptive and more dangerous than the one we see when a man bows down to a carved image. One of the clearest ways that idolatry is revealed in our hearts is when we would say with Israel in Isaiah 30, do not prophesy to us what is right. Tell us smooth things. Tell us lies. Paul tells Timothy that at the end, many would rather words, hear words that tickle their ears rather than the truth. Do we see that in modern evangelicalism? Reformed pastor theologian John Calvin once said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And he's right. We're often dissatisfied at a heart level with the voice of God we don't want the truth. We would rather hear that which our hearts desire. And I was talking to a friend and fellow pastor this week about a doctor's appointment I had. And I told him, uh, my doctor told me to lower my coffee consumption. And my friend wisely responded, time to find another doctor. <laughs> And I said, that's the best advice I've received all week. I'm kidding. But this is exactly the reason why we'd rather run to an idol rather than God. Because God speaks, but when God speaks, He speaks the truth. And the truth often confronts our desires. The truth often confronts what we want, what we would like to pursue. By nature, we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Friends, we don't stand in front of a shrine, of a shrine expecting an idol to speak to us. But we certainly stand in front of a TV set waiting for somebody to think for us and tell us how we ought to shape our opinions. Social media is plagued with so-called influencers who have no concern for holiness or godliness. And yet, 
Often we give hours of our days to them. Our phones have become a source of comfort to us to a point that we would not know what to do if we left our homes without them. Friends, when we look for that which we can only receive from God in things other than God, we commit a great sin. We commit idolatry. And idolatry deeply affects our relationship with God. Idolatry breeds a constant sense of dissatisfaction. Idolatry causes us to go into all the wrong places to find all we need, while all we need is in God. Idols on the surface promise much. They're overlaid with gold and silver. But in reality, at the end of the day, idolatry delivers nothing. Idols are teachers of lies. For some of us, our idols come in the shape of a car, a house, a relationship, perhaps a lifestyle, financial stability, a college degree, or a job, lust, anger, avarice. But idols are false. They're like mirage in the desert. They offer hope, but once we arrive, they deliver disappointments. Well, friends, there is one true God. And in Him, we find utter delight and satisfaction. Look at verse 20. God is enshrined in His holy temple. That's heaven. This God calls all the earth to keep silence before Him. This is a sign of reverence. This is a sign that God is worthy of our attention, our devotion. While we come before idols and we may speak a thousand words and receive no response, we can come before God, kneel down before Him and be silent and will hear. We think that when we see God in heaven, we'll rush Him with questions. We'll have a thousand things to say. But I believe when, when we see God in His glory, we'll be struck with awe. If we say anything, it would be, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Some angels have been doing this for a very long time. Friends, the life of chasing after an idol is exhausting. Idols are never satisfied and they never give satisfaction. So perhaps you walked into this place today and you're exhausted. You're tired of chasing after idols. You're tired because everything you try in life does not fulfill you. You're tired because you were promised if you only get that next job, if you only marry this person, 
If you only make this much money, if you only have more relationships, and every time, after chasing these goals, you realize these things don't satisfy, they don't fulfill, they don't cause me to be at rest. But God calls those who are exhausted to come to Him. To finding Him rest and to finding Him hope. I leave you today, friends, with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Come to me, all the labor and our heavy laden, and I, Jesus Christ, will give you rest. Would you pray with me? Father, how we need the rest that Christ provides. Lord, this world offers so many hopes, but none of them fulfilled, that Christ offers us Himself, and in Him we have all of us Help us, Lord. Help us know that. Help us come to Christ. Help us find in Him solace and the rest for our souls. We pray in His name. Amen.